Today's story that we're going to look at is about two friends whose senses were scattered. They couldn't hear God's voice above the noise of their own chatter. And their eyes were blind to all that Jesus was up to and his presence with them. Their senses were scattered. So let's turn to scripture. Richard, if you could bring up the first banner with the scripture on it. Luke 24, verse 13 to 35. I want to talk to you this morning just very simply about recentering our scattered senses on the presence of Jesus as we look at this passage together. So Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to read along. I'm reading from the NIV. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking with each other. uh, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, why are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to his tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them when he was at the table with them he took bread he gave thanks broke it and began to to give it to them then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us they got up and returned at once to jerusalem There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Lord, speak to us, I pray now, just in these few minutes as we reflect on this passage. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to our hearts. Open our eyes and our ears now in Jesus name. Amen. So I want to start by thinking about how these guys had filled a time of absence with activity. 
I read in the newspaper this week that over half the world's population are now in social isolation. It goes without saying that what is happening in our time right now has never happened before. That's fascinating. There are so many ways that social experts and political experts and scientists are trying to analyse and explain all that is going on around us, all that we're going through. And one way of describing it might be to describe the presence of a virus. But my guess is one of the ways that we'll remember it most when looking back on this time is that it was a time not of presence, but of absence. So many workplaces are shut. I know not all, but so many. Shops and high streets and canal paths and roads empty. Pubs and theatres, restaurants and cinemas are not filled. They're empty, just empty seats. Our houses of parliament are silent. Even our prime minister has had to step away for a while. His seat is empty. Our schools are missing the shouts and screams and laughter of children at play. And our church buildings are void of the prayers and the praises of the faithful. Perhaps one of the things we're missing most of all are the hugs and the embraces of loved ones and family. As a staff team, we were really moved this week as we, in our uh, prayer together, read uh, the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it says, of course, there is a time for everything. And it goes on to say, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And that's the time we're in. We're in a time of refraining from embracing. We're in a time of absence. It's not to say that there aren't still times of laughter and joy and hope and resolve. There are and it's beautiful to see. But for so many, there is a daily absence, an absence of work, an absence of comfort or rest. For some, an absence of finances, an absence of normality for all of us. And for many grieving families up and down our nation, there is now one of the most painful absences of all, the absence of a loved one taken too soon by this virus in all of this each of us share one absence in common and that is an absence of a sense of control over what's going on despite our best and good human efforts and it's right that science and politics work as hard as we can to solve as much as we can of this, to mitigate this and to help save lives. But so much of this time of genuine crisis is simply out of our hands, of the big experts' hands and certainly out of my hands and your hands. We don't know where to turn. It can seem frightening and our hearts can feel overwhelmed and our spirits struggling and our senses scattered and fretful, even if we're good at hiding it. And as we reflect on this passage together this morning, we read of two friends who are facing a time of genuine crisis marked by absence. Their dearest friend and companion, Jesus, the one they'd given up everything to follow, the one in all their hopes and dreams and prayers and future and certainty was placed in Jesus is now absent. He has died. Everything that seemed so possible was now gone. Their hearts were confused, their spirits struggling and their senses scattered and fretful. And to be honest, they weren't very good at hiding it. For where do we find these two friends? We find them desperately trying to make sense of it all and trying to hold on to some normality. I've always wondered why on earth when their friends are back 
in Jerusalem? Why are they going on a walk away from their friends to their hometown, presumably seven miles away? And after the reports of the morning of angels and possibilities that Jesus might be alive and what the women said and the excitement, perhaps, just perhaps, it was all too much. They've decided we can stay no longer. Did the washing need doing? Did the walls need a repaint? Did the garden need mowing? In all this chaos, I don't know what it was. Perhaps it was they just wanted to go and feed the cat. But they decided they had to go and walk. You know, sometimes it's okay. Sometimes we all just need to go and feed the cat. That's all right. Sometimes we can feel the absence we feel with too much activity, actually, and too much clutter. A way of coping and trying to take back a sense of control, which is what I think these guys were up to. We fill our time by obsessing over the news or wasting hours on our phone or watching endless episodes of Homes Under the Hammer. Man, that show. We run around rushing and fretting and desperately trying to fill the void. We go over and over again, the statistics, the developments, the possibilities, the present, the future, the numbers, the meaning. And as we do that, we can be blinded actually to God's presence in this moment and fail to hear his voice above our own clatter and noise. Our senses are scattered. And here are two friends doing just that. For as they're walking along, it's not just any ordinary natter. Scripture is trying to hint here that this was a deep discussion they were having as Jesus came alongside and joined them. He could see that they were gravely concerned. They were exchanging words, exchanging theories, desperately processing, trying to fit it all into controllable boxes. And in their frantic processing and activity, they were actually kept from recognizing who it was that now walked with them. But even when Jesus kept asking them, what is it that's so, or when Jesus asked them, what is it that's so important for you to be acting in this way, for you to be discussing in this way as you're walking along? They stopped short with sadness, almost disbelief written on their faces, don't you know? Friends, in times of absence and crisis, like these two friends, we can sometimes dig and dig and dig into our own resources and we end up exhausted and falling flat and finding ourselves wanting. We end up like Elijah, my hero of the Old Testament, sat under a tree saying, I'm done. I'm no good. I've got nothing left here. I can't handle it anymore. Or like Peter just returning to his nets and going, well, I give up. I don't know what Jesus is up to. He's not with us right now. This was before the Holy Spirit came, but after his resurrection, I just want something safe to return to. So he goes fishing where people called to shine like stars, burning with truth and the hope of the gospel in a situation like this. And yet we simply can't do that when we're digging only into our own limited resources. But God came to Elijah And he asked him with gentleness, what are you doing here? And Jesus comes to Peter, doesn't he, as we will hear in two weeks time from Paul when he speaks. Why are you fishing that old way again? Go the other side, just as I taught you. And even though they don't recognize him, that's exactly what Jesus has done here as he's drawn alongside these two friends. Heading in the wrong direction 
going round in ever-deepening circles of confusion and sadness, and he gently asks them, so what's this all about then? You know, I believe genuinely, I'm not just saying this, this is a time where Jesus is drawing near and wanting to draw near to you and me, to his people, and maybe to those who don't yet know him. Their response, as he asks them, they just... It's like a flood being loosed from a dam. It's like a barrage of information. That's how I tried to read it when we read the scriptures. Don't you know the stuff with Jesus, the prophet and the miracles and he was supposed to be the Messiah and the Romans were going to be overthrown. And and it was going to be God's kingdom, but it's all gone wrong. And he's been crucified and killed and he's dead. And now this morning and the women and the angels and the empty tomb and we and well, we just need to get back to our village to try and cope with all this horrendous crisis. And the one thing we know for sure is that he is dead. And that means he can't be the Messiah. It's not supposed to be this way. It's. God's not in control. It's all gone wrong. It's like a cork popping from the bottle and they splurge all their theories and wrestling out in a sudden rush towards their new traveling companion. But, you know, Jesus knows in their upset and their confusion, they're digging in totally the wrong places for answers and resources and strength. They're on the wrong road, going in the wrong direction. They turned inwards and they filled this sense of absence with human activity and fretful striving. And so Jesus, in his utter love, steps in and tells them, stop. Stop. This time is unique. And Jesus wants to draw near to us. But we're going to need to stop. And we're going to need to realise that he's wanting to fill this time of absence, not with activity, but with his presence. The next little banner, please, Richard. Thank you. And Jesus says it like it is. He says, you foolish people. It's one of those moments where his abruptness almost offends us. He remembers. (laughs) No, but we need to remember As he says this, you foolish people, Jesus doesn't come to embarrass us or upset us. He draws alongside us always in love. His intent is to shape us and to mould us, to help us and to encourage us. And sometimes that means he has to say, stop it. Now be quiet. Shush. And hear my voice above your fretful noise. He wants our hearts filled with his truth, burning with passion for the gospel for the truth of who he is and this amazing truth that we have in him, not filled with the activity of our own hearts. And he says to them, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, it says he explained to them what is said in scriptures concerning themselves. I don't know what this sermon was, but I can't imagine a better sermon preached. It must have been amazing. Jesus would have spoken of God's eternal and amazing plan of salvation to them throughout the ancient scriptures. It had always been there. It was clear step by step what God was up to all the way. They just missed it. He would have reminded them how God sent them a leader to to rescue them from Egypt, from slavery and the chains of bondage and to give them a new law. And he would have said that is Jesus. 
He is now the new one who has come, the new leader, come to set you free from the chains of sin and darkness and death and brokenness and put his law of grace in your hearts to transform you from within. It all points to Jesus. He would have reminded them how God used to love to dwell with them in the desert, in that tabernacle, and how one day he said he would dwell with them in person. It's all about Jesus. He would have said Jesus came, God came and became like us, one of us and dwelt with us. And now the temple veil has been torn because he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit and be with you personally. He would have spoken about the great sacrifice system. It was put in place just temporarily, a way of mercy, of showing how serious sin was. It was going to take the blood spilt of an animal to cover the sin. And on that day of atonement, once a year, how they would place the sin symbolically on the head of a goat and send it off into the wilderness, cast it away. He would have said this was all about Jesus, the one whose blood was poured out for your sin and the sins of the world. This was all about Jesus, the one who every sin was placed on his head and shoulders. He took the lot, all the burden and all the weight and all the debt. And he paid it all. And he dealt with it all and it is gone. The one perfect sacrifice, wiping the slate clean. Jesus is the promised shepherd of Ezekiel, the promised king of the prophets, the humble one who was full of strength and filled with the spirit, who would bring justice to all, who would open the eyes of the blind and bind up the wounds of the broken. The promise that God would come, well, he has come in Jesus and he had to suffer and die. That was how the only way he could do it. He came and did something that seems like foolishness to the world, but it's not. Let your hearts burn with the truth of it. Jesus has set us free. Let's hear the words of Isaiah. Just listen to these words. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 42. This is Jesus. I will pour water on a thirsty land. I will pour my spirit on your offspring. I am the first and the last. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? Isaiah 44. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other before me. Every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear and confess. Isaiah 45, this is Jesus. And surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Isaiah 53. This is Jesus. The cross, the pain, the suffering. It was all part of God's plan. The Lord has known this moment was coming from the very beginning, just as he's known this moment we're going through now. God's plan has not been foiled. The enemy hasn't won. Darkness doesn't reign. No, from the very beginning of all history. God has been shaping things for the moment when the greatest story of salvation would happen, would take place. You see, Jesus's story of salvation isn't just a story. It's the story. It's the big story of all of history. And it can be the story that reshapes your life and mine. God is not overwhelmed or tired out or losing control. He reigns and his plans will succeed. 
And yet in this time, we can so often start digging from our own resources instead of letting God fill our hearts with the burning and wonderful truth of his plan. Jesus has risen. He is Lord and King. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Take heart, friends, for this great story of salvation has not finished yet. It includes us, me and you, in this time now. He continues to shape and change the lives of all who put their trust in him. To this very day, you, yes, you are more loved, more cherished and more delighted than you could ever imagine. Because he did it all for you and for me. And greater love has never been shown. It's no wonder they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us on the road? I just want to encourage you, folks, that God, I believe, wants to stir our hearts and fill them again afresh with the truth of his amazing gospel. In this moment, this time is unique. And he is going to be wanting to draw alongside you and me in a way perhaps he can't do in any other time. Wisdom, the Bible says, has been calling out in the marketplace over the bustle, raising its voice. But would people listen? Well, for once, the marketplace is quiet and wisdom is speaking. Will you listen? Will you stop? Will you let God tell you his truth, the truth of the gospel and let your heart be filled again? God is up to something in the church and he's up to something in you and my life. The question is, will you ask him, Lord, what are you doing in me in this time? So let me be quick now because we're going to turn to communion together. But I want to say to you, it was no wonder that the friends desperately wanted Jesus to stay. It was no wonder that as he went to carry on walking, they were desperate for more of that amazing truth that he just shared with them. They were hungry for more. I wonder, are you hungry for more of God's truth this morning? Tell him, say, Lord, I'm listening. Speak to me and fill my heart. But their guests, still unknown to them, knew that it's more than just words they need. Richard, if you could put the next um, next one up. They need their eyes truly open to the presence of God who has drawn near. You know, so often it's not God who is absent, but it's our capacity to notice him alongside us. And for them, Jesus knew this was only going to happen around a meal table, a meal shared with the one who loved them beyond measure. A simple meal that they would have eaten day in, day out. But just like it was transformed three days earlier at the Passover, this meal was going to be a moment of encounter, of extraordinary presence. For it was this moment as he picked up the bread and they watched him break it and give thanks for it, that their eyes were opened. And the truth of whose presence they were in overwhelmed them. And their scattered senses finally were centered and their eyes were opened as they realized Jesus really was alive. And he was with them. In that moment, his presence filled their absence. And that was enough. No more was needed. So Jesus left. I love that. He just disappeared. That's enough. You've got it. You've got it. And of course, he would never truly leave them. His spirit was coming to be alongside them just as he is with us. Perhaps it's the way he tore the bread that helped it come thundering home. Perhaps he had a certain way of holding it or tearing it into dough pieces as he gave 
thanks to his father. Perhaps they'd seen him do that very same thing when he fed the 5,000 or at the Passover just recently. Perhaps as he leaned across with the bread, they saw his nail uh, marks on his hands. Whatever it was now in this very moment, they watched the crumbs hitting the table and they realized they were in the presence of the risen king. This is his body broken. And he did that for the world. And he did that for me. And yet this is the body that the grave could not hold. He busteth apart. He rose again and he's living and breathing and eating with us and fellowshipping with us right now. In their moment, in that moment, all their striving and human plans and rational arguments and desperate theories just fell away. And instead, in flooded hope and understanding and purpose and love and dignity and forgiveness. God's ways, God's plan. Jesus is Lord. Friends, we're going to turn now to the same meal. We're going to turn to communion and we're going to break bread together. And my prayer is that maybe today would mark this moment now, the beginning of you being able to let Jesus centre your scattered senses. That your heart might be filled to burning with the goodness of the gospel, with the power and the hope we have in Jesus. And your eyes may be opened to Jesus with us and his presence. One of my favourite series uh, on DVD It's called Friday Night Lights. It's about American football team. And their slogan that they say before every match is clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And it just struck me as I was reflecting on this scripture and writing this sermon. Clear eyes, full hearts. It's my prayer for us as God's people. I believe it's what he wants to do in a unique and special way in this time of absence, this unique time. He wants to speak to us in ways that he has never been able to because of all the rush before. Even if you're at work and you are working so hard, he's going to want to speak to you in this moment in ways he's never spoken before. This is not a time just of waiting. But a time where God is at work. This is not a time of absence, but a time of presence, not a time just of holding, but a time of growth for you and for me, for his kingdom, for his church. And Jenny in the same line, spoke to us and shared with us as leaders, she had a sense that this is a time of incubation, of propagation. God's doing something in the secret place of our hearts. I know he's at work in me and it's not always easy. It doesn't feel easy right now. I'm being challenged deeply. Maybe you are too. But I would say to you this morning, don't be afraid, but be brave enough to ask the question this week as you wake up in the morning, Lord, what are you doing within me right now? Lord, what are you doing? What are you up to? What are you birthing in me? New ministry, a new heart, a love for the poor, for the broken, a love for Jesus, a passion for prayer. What are you up to, Lord?